We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And this evening I'm joined in the studio by Dimitri Buas of TVBS News. Hi, good evening. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing Terry Guo seeking to make his Jingmen Peace Declaration a real policy later this month and talk of who's going to support him if he chooses to run. Questions over the Taipei-Shanghai Twin City Forum regarding Mayor Zheng Wen'an's attendance there, the opening of a carbon exchange in Kaohsiung, fallout from a food poisoning case involving a Vietnamese sandwich stand sparking a possibly rather questionable government reaction, and news that a leopard cat has been sighted in Tainan for the first time in 17 years and the population is, well, it's increasing, but it's not doing OK. But we'll begin with KMT presidential candidate Ho Yoe unveiling his energy policy platform and his 2050 energy vision on Wednesday of this week. Now, according to Ho, he will not phase out nuclear power if elected and will instead reopen decommissioned plants. And speaking at a press conference that featured a presentation on a large television screen, Ho said that his policies include ensuring environmental sustainability, national security, people's health, and an orderly transition to renewables. While at the same time, he also said that his policies will ensure examinations and repairs of the first three nuclear power plants and establish a safety review committee to re-examine the decision to discontinue construction of the fourth nuclear power plant. And the KMT presidential candidate stressed that his policy works toward achieving a stable power supply in Taiwan to ensure energy security and national security. Oh, and he also slammed the DPP, accusing it of failing in its goal to make Taiwan a nuclear-free country by 2025 and also for its failure to meet its target to generate 20% of energy from renewables. Needless to say, some were very quick to slam Ho, with environmental groups accusing him and the KMT of failing to offer any solutions for the handling and disposal of spent fuel rods from the island's nuclear power plants. And they also accused him of seeking to deceive voters into believing that nuclear energy is some kind of cure for Taiwan's energy problems. Oh, and they also drew parallels between his policies and those of former President Ma Ying-jeou and a former Kaohsiung mayor and one-time presidential hopeful Hang Guo-yu when he was running for president. So, Dimitri, we've got energy policies. A big policy presentation, finally, from Ho Yoe about energy. Well, it's well, it's a big big announcement, but it's a very trippy, tricky topic for, for, for the presidential candidate for two main reasons. First, the presidential candidate needs to do more than just undo the ruling party's actions of the past eight years. Hoyoi made a strong point. One, our current power reserve is critically low and at around 10%, teasering on the edge of the supply tight condition below 10%. So in July, it was even worse at 8.2%. Now, unforeseen issues like squirrels in power plants can lead to power cuts in Taiwan. And this is a hassle for regular folks, but a disaster for manufacturers. Imagine like fridges losing power and tons of food going to waste. Both the ruling and the opposition party agree on one thing. Taiwan's export-focused semiconductor uh, economy economy demands a lot of electricity, but the opposition leader uh, task should 
should be to build a moral case for net zero uh, Taiwan instead of planning to go back in time. You know, the ruling party knows hitting targets quickly is tough, but their support for nuclear energy strikes a chord with the younger generation. So Hoyoi should maybe shift the conversation towards green economies, suggesting fresh ideas for wind, geothermal and hydrogen policies rather than just harping a cold fire plant's pollution. The second problem is uh, the, with the KMT candidate. It, I think he's facing another concern. His focus on nuclear power signals a belief in cheap electricity. And the KMT energy plan heavily relies on this notion, neglecting the potential of energy-saving measures to enhance our economy instead of uh, ceaseless production. Do you know that Taiwan's construction standards mostly prioritize uh, earthquake resistance in Taiwan? However, the emphasis the emphasis is often misses like energy efficiency issues. So in both residential and factory settings, wasteful practices go unchecked, hindering progress. So the KMT misses an opportunity to champion responsibility and moral leadership. So the motivation is clear here. Uh, amid the uh, sluggish economy, the KMT seeks business support, yet the candidate must look past the election and forging alliance with foreign companies, for example, in Taiwan, already uh, that are already practicing energy conservation for years. So these are the main shortcomings for the KMT energy plan. Going back to super cheap electricity is not enough. They need to see beyond the election date. Yeah, actually, I think Dimitri is, is pretty much nailed there. Um, yeah, fundamentally, a few things that uh, I, I think that the government and all the major parties need to look at is how exactly is this going to be sustainable going forward? And the TPP actually is the one that's been, I think, the most creative and has kind of tackled this in a way that you know that 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 actually has uh, some basic understanding of what the fundamental problems are. The TPP has talked about removing uh, the government intervention in the market forces that rule the energy economy. So that means lifting the subsidies on uh, on various forms of, of you know uh, utilities. And that, of course, would spur a lot of interest in conservation, because Taiwan has some of the lowest uh, utility costs, and in, we're including water, uh, you know, natural gas, uh, gas for your car, and of course, electricity is all within that. And so they're talking about restoring some of that, and that, of course, would put a lot of impetus on private industries to then consider how it is that they can reduce their usage of these things for the simple commercial reason that they need to save money. Now, of course, the KMT on, in this particular instance, especially uh, Hoyoi, has backtracked on some of his own previous stances as new Taipei mayor. Uh, you know, uh, dealing with the uh, spent nuclear rods, with, you know, and nuclear waste, he previously has said that it, that it would not be feasible to expand or find new ways of dealing with those things, but now there, uh, there's legally no way to do so. And so w while there's no way to do so, then, you know, in part because of his decisions as new Taipei mayor, 
how are they going to circumvent this? You know, what are the legal mechanisms that they're going to go go through to to circumvent the the existing rules and find a legal way of handling the nuclear waste? Now, another problem is that they have to come up with ways of, if he wants to extend the nuclear power plants, a, a, a useful period where they can extend again. They're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to change the laws, and you know, these are all very kind of complicated legal issues, which are going to be very complicated for someone who is the new Taipei mayor who previously opposed doing these things. Now, any of these uh, can, uh, any of the presidential candidates, you know, they they have talked about and they have put some, you know, some form of interest into extending um, renewable uh, renewable sources of energy, which right now, because there are so many different rules and regulations and local sourcing uh, rules, has made it not terribly economical for foreign country companies to invest in uh, offshore wind and that that's all, uh, another major problem because you've got you know companies like Orsted who are kind of balking now where they used to be very enthusiastic about investing in the in the Taiwan market but it's become too expensive. The regulations are too onerous, and the feed-in tariffs that Thai Power offers are too low. So you've got a situation where they're relying entirely on uh, companies like TSMC to directly purchase power from them at a higher rate than Thai Power is offering, and that's the only thing keeping or sustaining uh, investment in offshore wind and these, you know, and other renewables, uh, viable because state-owned Thai power just simply can't do it. Well, this kind of uh, we call like back to the future policies. You want to go back and change everything. The trick is, ruling parties in Taiwan stay in power around eight years, maybe more, maybe less. But when it comes to those energy policies, you need to plan for the next 20 to 30 years. If you build or if you restart producing uh, electricity uh, at nuclear power plants, it's a long-term project. But the problem is every eight years or less or more, the opposition party, when it comes into power, will try to do the opposite. And that's when we're wasting time. We've wasted millions zillions of anti dollars in these uh, in these nuclear power plants so restarting everything over the problem could we, within the next 8 years we could again face the same problem and go back to the uh, policies or uh, from, from the other party so there is no clear answer here and we need to find a solution to this problem with the nuclear power plants there the, there's several problems um now, it's true that the, the useful term of the existing nuclear power plants could be extended if they can find a way to deal with the nuclear waste, if they can find, you know, change the legal rules for how to extend all these things. There's a lot of complicated problems there. Um, now, opponents of nuclear power do have some points. Uh, Taiwan is very seismically active, and that's not a good combination with these old 
Newton, these old designs that the current nuclear, the three nuclear power plants uh, are based around. It's, you know, Fukushima is very much a, a, a clear and not very happy model of what can happen if you deal with a major seismic event. Then there's talk about reviving the fourth nuclear power plant, which the, the you know, the rods have already been shipped overseas. It will take quite a long time to revive it if they want to do that. It's a somewhat newer model, but it's actually at this point quite a quite a, it's still an, an old model of nuclear power plant. So they're not terribly great nuclear. Uh, you know, the, mo- the the models and the uh, of how these these nuclear power plants run are not terribly modern, they're not terribly safe. Um, so these are genuine concerns. Another genuine concern and on my part uh, is I just simply don't trust Thai Power. Uh, Thai Power has a terrible record at handling uh, nuclear power plants. They've had a lot of accidents and problems, and so that's very concerning. However, uh, proponents do have very good points in that you know these are you know, they, they don't have the pollution issues. Uh, for example, here in Taichung, we have the Taichung power plant with the coal-fired units, which up until only you know, five or so years ago was the largest uh, coal-fired power plant in the world, and our lungs have suffered for it. So, you know, keeping the nuclear power plants alive is good for our lungs here in central Taiwan. Uh, so there are definitely reasons you could argue either way on this one, and I do think it's a complicated issue. Moving on now, and Terry Gore got himself in front of the TV cameras once again this week. Gore, though, refused to say whether he plans to run as an independent candidate in the upcoming presidential election, saying only that his goal is to work for the replacement of the ineffective DPP as demanded by mainstream public opinion, and that he said he supports and he will strive for the unity of that mainstream opinion. That statement followed comments by Jungwa County Council Speaker Xie Tian Lin. Now, Xie recently quit the KMT, sparking speculation as to whether he would support Gore. He has since said that he supports Gore teaming up with Taiwan People's Party presidential candidate Kerwin Zhe because he believes if the Honhai founder runs as an independent, it will effectively ensure a DPP victory. And on Wednesday, Gore met with visiting former Japanese Prime Minister Taro Aso and presented him with a copy of his Jingmen Peace Declaration manifesto. And speaking to reporters after leaving the Regent Hotel in Taipei, Gore said he discussed his declaration and regional security during the hour-long meeting. Now, Guo said that presenting Asso with a copy of his declaration is part of efforts to promote the need for Taiwan to both prepare for war and also avoid war. Now, the Honhai founder and possible 2024 election candidate also took time to stress that Asso contacted him through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to request said meeting. And then he showed reporters an anime-themed stamp collection Asso had given him, saying that he hoped that young Taiwanese could enjoy anime, democracy and freedom without the threat of war. Now, since Fern's announcing his Jingmen Peace Declaration, in May of this year, Gore has repeatedly said that it offers both sides of the Taiwan Strait a viable communication channel to avoid war. Now, Gore is expected to begin advocating for his declaration to become policy later this month. So, Donovan, a couple of things there. He met with Taro Asso. His Jingmen Peace Declaration is hoping to become policy, or he hopes it will become policy. And also, we have the Zhanghua County Council Speaker. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. 
Um, his Jim and Peace Proclamation is, I, I, I'll be honest, I found it quite disturbing. Um, when you combine it with his views on national defense, which involves things like 80,000 uh, you know, uh, robots and uh, he wants to defend. He wants to build the local defense industry using innovation and these kinds of things. He's very explicitly said uh, he wants to stop buying arms from the United States. Uh, it, it it adds up to a picture which is, to be honest, very speculative, very optimistic, um, very uh, you know, very unbalanced toward, uh, for example, the company he founded, Foxconn, although he no longer leads it, um, but the local defense establishment refuses to buy their products because they be, they believe that uh, Foxconn is too deeply invested in China. So, you know, they won't uh, buy any, any defense items from Foxconn. Now, when it comes to uh, Xi from Zhanghua, he makes some very interesting points. Now, he stepped down, of course, because uh, his sister, he's the county speaker. And, of course, now, um, he's a very important figure, and his Nanto counterpart also resigned from the KMT recently. And both uh, are extremely important figures within local politics. It's generally the local county council or city council speakers who really have their finger on the pulse on how to drive up, uh, you know, drive voter drives, get out the vote drives uh, within their areas. And, you know, uh, Jenny, Jennifer Chen, the uh, Jinmen uh, lawmaker from the KMT, who's a famous supporter of Terry Guo, says that 80% of these local city and county council um, speakers support Terry Guo. Now, uh, others within the party, Mirror Media, for example, says you know, they quote insiders in the party saying that she probably overestimates it, but then go on to say it's probably more like 60 to 70 percent. So Guo has been assiduously courting these people who are exactly the get out the vote people within Taiwan to, you know, and bring them on his side far more so than Ho Yui, the official KMT candidate. So there's definitely a split on the pan blue side here, and Terry Gore is honestly doing a far better job on hitting the people within the party that he needs to to get get out the vote, but yet he's officially not a candidate. Now, again, we need to boil, boil this down. Is he trying to use his activities, and he's doing, literally, he's checked every single box for what you want to be if you're going to be a presidential candidate in Taiwan. Everything from issuing all your policy platforms, visiting the United States and Japan, holding rallies, uh, issuing, a, you know, writing a book and having a book release. He's hit every single one of these points, which indicates that he is running for president and then refuses to declare. So really what this boils down to at the end of the day is, what is he up to? So there's a few possibilities here. One is he is genuinely running for president, but that will split the the vote uh, on the anti or non-DPP side uh, three ways rather than two ways, which is already a challenge 
to take down the ruling party. And, of course, there are polls saying that the majority of the public wants to have a change of ruling party. But if you split it three ways, which is, you know, what his running would do, that makes it virtually impossible. Running it two ways already makes it difficult between the TPP and the KMT. Another possibility is he's trying to influence or change or get the current parties to accept some of his policies, like, for example, his Jim and Peace policy, our proclamation, get them to incorporate that. Maybe that's what he's up to. Or he's trying to arrange a deal. And, for example, I pointed out there's a possibility that maybe what he's after is a powerful executive position. Now, previously, he's already ruled out, uh, you know, being on the party list at the top of the list and, uh, you know, trying to become the the speaker of the legislature. That's, uh, that's ruled out. A possibility might be that either the TPP or the KMT offers him the vice presidential slot on the ticket, and if they win, then he becomes the premier. And, of course, Lian Chan in 1996 would be the model for that. Well, I agree that the business tycoon is a headache for the ruling and opposition parties, but but that's good news. Uh, You know, opposition leaders are avoiding direct criticism for three main reasons. Terry Goh's long-standing KMT financial support, close ties to key opposition leaders like Ma Yingjie or Lian Zhan and Wang Jinping, who tapped into his China connections, and fear that his candidacy might fracture the party. Now, the KMT faces a more pressing challenge, though. Their candidate, Hou Youyi, is struggling in the polls, and joining forces with Go risk losing moderate voters. Aligning with him could be a problem for the TPP, the TPP head too, Ke Wenzhe too, and it would boost his lead over the KMT candidate, but it would endanger his chances against the ruling party. Now, the ruling party faces a dilemma too. Criticizing Go would mean targeting the vital business community, which is pivotal for Taiwan's success, especially during the pandemic. While the DPP might disagree with China investments, those exporting to China are crucial for our economy. So the Honghai Group, globally successful and well-managed, boasts connections from Xi Jinping to President Donald Trump. So in Taiwan society, the business community significantly backs political both blue and green. So it is unprecedented for a business tycoon to to believe that he can outperform a local politician, which is very interesting. So the problem is that whether we like it or not, we like him or not, Terry Goh is more than a headache. He's a potential candidate who doesn't take no for an answer. Now, if he's part of this political landscape, it's up to you if you want to vote for him or not, but he has something to say. And maybe we should sometimes listen to a different voice than the blue or the green camp. And staying with political news this week, it's that time of year once again when talk in Taipei City political circles turns to the Taipei-Shanghai Twin City Forum. Now, the Taipei City government this week refused to comment on reports that Mayor Zhang Wen'an will lead a delegation to the event this year. And according to city government spokesman Yin Wei, the two cities are in the final stages of planning for the forum and will make a public announcement when the details have been confirmed. However, the spokesman refused to release any further details, well, obviously because they haven't been confirmed yet. Now, the non-committal comment came after the United Daily News reported that this year's Twin City Forum will be taking place in Shanghai on August the 29th through the 30th 
31st and that the Taipei city mayor is planning to attend. And the report cited anonymous sources as saying that 11 Taipei city councillors representing either the KMT or the Taiwan People's Party are expected to join Zhang Wen and in the in-person delegation to the Chinese city. Now, the forum was, of course, held virtually from 2020 to 2022 due to the coronavirus pandemic, and KMT chairman Eric Ju is defending the event, despite the confirmation that Zhang might not be going, or might be going, as we don't know. And Eric Ju slammed the DPP for creating obstacles for cross-strait exchanges with China by disparaging the forum and those who may or may not choose to attend it. So, Donovan, will Zhang Wen'an go, or won't he go, and does it make a difference if he goes or not I, I don't think it actually makes all that much difference um now i, I mean obviously you know i'm in taijong and i'm not, not a taipei resident so i followed this a little bit less closely than i, I followed national or local local things but i don't think that the taipei mayor engaging in diplomatic issue, diplomatic relations with the Shanghai government really makes a huge amount of difference. Now, obviously, um, opponents tend to view the CCP and, you know, the Shanghai government and the CCP in general as one unified uh, block and that, you know, by engaging with them, you're encouraging them with their incursions into Taiwan's ADIZ and the threatening moves that the CCP is making. Proponents would say that this keeps open levels of dialogue with the CCP and with China uh, that we wouldn't otherwise have because the national government, of course, won't, won't accept the 1992 consensus or the One China Principle, which the 1992 consensus is predicated on. Now, this creates a situation where there's a lot of infighting about this here in Taiwan, but fundamentally what we're looking at is city-to-city diplomacy. These are, you know, this isn't a national-level issue, and, you know, I don't think that this is going to improve anything for us here in Taichung, for us, you know, here in Taiwan, because the national level CCP and the national level government here in Taiwan that really makes things happen. It might possibly create some opportunities for businesses in Taipei, but again, you know, this is what this is doing is is potentially undermining a national strategy carried out on the national level to handling and dealing with China, which is engaging in repeated, uh, you know, gray zone warfare tactics against Taiwan. Well, I agree. This is a double-edged sword for the Taipei mayor, but he needs to take his fair share of troubles to support a presidential candidate in the election. Well, anticipation for his departure was was widespread anyway, so the key lies in staying near the light without getting burned. You know, the forum offers an opportunity to introduce an alternative view of Taiwan politics to the Shanghai-based international media. And Taipei needs a voice that welcomes investment not just from China but from the global from global businesses and Shanghai is a major economic hub that draws investors from all around the region so in the months preceding the presidential election the mayor can showcase that peaceful cross-strait relations aren't a zero-sum game that and peaceful cross-strait relations can benefit all nations also the trip 
presents a chance for the mayor to enhance his international reputation, a fact that he likely knows. He recently visited Singapore, engaging in a series of successful public and private meetings. So this approach have aided him in countering any pro-China perception that is sticking with him. So this Shanghai visit could be another step in his journey, extending to cities maybe like Tokyo, Seoul, Manila, Jakarta and Bangkok in the future. And these destinations are where we anticipate not only him, but all Taiwan mayors and magistrates to see in the future. While, you know, Tiang may not be, uh, may not express gratitude for this strategy to someone like Han Gui, but it's important to realize that Taipei's growth is tied to support from to support from other Asian cities, a concept I think Mayor Ho perhaps took too long to understand. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday oversaw the opening of a carbon exchange at the Kaohsiung Software Park. The exchange is part of the government's ongoing efforts to reduce carbon emissions and achieve its goal of net zero emissions by 2050. And speaking at the inauguration ceremony, Tsai said the establishment of a carbon exchange platform in Kaohsiung is expected to bring Taiwan into line with other countries as they push for industrial transformation through carbon emissions reduction. And according to Tsai, the carbon exchange will work with its international counterparts to help Taiwan reach its goal of low carbon emissions and those efforts are expected to bring in more than 4 trillion NT in private investment. Tsai also said that it will bring in 5.9 trillion NT in production value while potentially creating more than 550,000 jobs from now through 2030. Now the carbon exchange has been set up by the Taiwan Stock Exchange and the National Development Fund and the local stock exchange says the carbon exchange will initially focus on consultation services on related issues including carbon fees and levies in the domestic market, international carbon border taxes and carbon neutrality. So, Dimitri, we have a carbon exchange. Of course, I don't think many people actually know what a carbon exchange is. Well, the the, the exchange focused mostly on consulting and then domestic and overseas carbon credits trading, but the trading is actually scheduled to start early next year, so aligning with Taiwan's Climate Change Response Act enforced on, uh, I think it was mid-February. So this collaboration between the Taiwan Stock Exchange and this uh, the Taiwan Carbon Solution Exchange is mostly to promote sustainable businesses. Uh, and foster maybe low-carbon industries and contribute to Taiwan's net-zero transition. But it might take more time to start. It's not something that will happen overnight. And Donovan, that's a lot of jobs they're going to create, apparently. Apparently, yeah. I, I mean, they they haven't even set the you know the the amount of money that uh, you know it's, it's between was it one one and three hundred NT uh, per ton, and yeah, it's, it, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. It's really so with a lot of these questions unanswered, and how we'll integrate with overseas standards. And there really, to me, just it seems at this point that it's a, kind of a giant mystery, and we don't really know yet how it's going to operate in practice. So it's, it's really hard to have much of a comment on it one way or the other. But, I mean, they opened it in Kaohsiung, not Taipei. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, the, the government is trying to uh, promote what they would refer 
referred to as regional justice in that all the investment has previously gone into Taipei uh, for government agencies and so on and so forth. So, you know, uh, setting this up in Kaohsiung is a way for them to signal that they are not put you know, continuing to just pump yet more money into the Taipei economy. And, of course, you know, nobody can afford to live in Taipei anymore. So, um, you know, Kaohsiung is obviously a much more affordable city. And, you know, this, in theory, from the government's perspective, evens out some of the government's investments in the country from a national perspective. And would you think they could open similar offices regionally, one in Taipei and maybe one in Taichung? I don't know if they need more than one office. I mean, at this point, we don't know how many companies are going to be interested in being involved in this. We Again, we don't know how it's going to interact with international standards. You know, so at this point, I, that's purely speculative. I, I mean, how many people do they need to have to operate this? And, of course, it could probably all be done digitally. So I, I, I don't yet see any reason why they would need more offices around the country. It's not like the old days, you know, when you had the stock markets, when you had the guys waving the bits of paper and, you know, and waving the hand motions and all of that. You know, we live in a digital world now, so we probably don't need more than one office. And the Taoyuan City Department of Public Health this week find the owner of a Vietnamese sandwich stand at a traditional market 540,000 NT following a mass food poisoning. Now, the more than 500 people reported falling ill after eating at the Ban Mi stand. Some of the victims have since tested positive for salmonella. Now, while cases of large-scale food poisonings are not uncommon here in Taiwan, they're usually centred on schools or catered events and not a single eatery. Now, the incident sparked what's possibly best referred to as an ill conceived knee-jerk reaction from the Food and Drug Administration, which released a statement saying it will be stepping up inspections of restaurants and stalls serving what it called foreign cuisine. And according to FDA Deputy Director Lin Jin Fu, inspections will be conducted at some 200 foreign cuisine restaurants and food stalls until November. The FDA says those inspections will be targeting restaurants and food stands serving a wide variety of international cuisine. So Donovan, I guess targeting what appears to be certain types of foreign cuisine will solve all of the food poisoning problems. <laughs> I, I think you put your finger right on it in the introduction there. Um, the vast majority of these cases, as you've noted, they happen at schools, and these happen because the suppliers of school lunchboxes, uh, you know, for the children there, they tend to cut a lot of corners, and they a lot of the deals that, you know, involve local schools and the suppliers are, how should we put it, not exactly entirely on the level in a lot of cases. So, you know, that is a far more serious problem. It's a far more systemic problem, and it's one that happens so regularly that, you know, it's often not even reported on because it's just, uh, okay, oh, that again, right? Now, this is one individual stand which is not a systemic problem. And there's absolutely no evidence that, uh, you know, Vietnamese or any other foreign-style foods have any kind of systemic problem with food safety or, you know, it's, it's not a problem that we see on a regular basis. In other words, it's not something that is part baked into the system, there are no incentives whatsoever 
for anyone operating any of these stands, foreign or otherwise, to, to you know, to provide food, which is going to poison their customers. Now, when you're getting to the schools, they want to cut corners because supplying the students and the children on a mass scale. So they try and cut a lot of corners to pad their own, you know, their own pockets. But in this case, I don't see why a, you know, a bami shop or a stall is any different than any other stall within a night market. And, of course, over 500 people poisoned, that's pretty significant. But on the other hand, you look at over 500 people, that means that that was a pretty popular stall. So they were getting something right on the food side, but obviously something you know, slipped through the cracks on the safety and quality side. But again, I don't see this as being a particularly foreign food versus non-foreign food issue. And you know, if you're going to inspect or be very careful about what comes out of food stalls within night markets, you're going to have to do it across the board. You can't just systematically target foreign run or locally run the stalls serving foreign style food. I, I don't see how that makes it makes any difference whatsoever to the basic principle at hand. Well, I totally agree. Um, Salmonella doesn't speak English, Vietnamese or Chinese. It's uh, commonly found in animal products such as eggs, diary and meat, so as well as fresh fruit and vegetable. So this is a common condition in Taiwan. So what is uncommon is of targeting foreign eateries for, for, for unknown reason. The FDA should really promote proper handling of ingredients and, and at all eateries, including restaurants and night markets. And that should that would, I think, increase confidence and customers' confidence in, in, in eating out. But single pointing out one Vietnamese restaurant for these reasons, I think it's really unfair. And Dimitri, of course, the FDA even named the street in Jonghe District in New Taipei, which has, of course, Southeast Asian foods as one of the places will definitely be inspecting that area. Sure. They even created this International Cuisine Restaurants Inspection Project. So we have, there is a project now for, so you, if in the street, if you have five different eateries and then maybe Italian food, Vietnamese and Taiwanese, they're going to skip the Taiwanese one. It doesn't make any sense. But will they inspect the Italian one? Oh, I they think they should. I think they should. They should. Yes, <laughs> dodgy pasta there. Yes. Anyway, before we go this week, leopard cats were in the news as the Forestry and Nature Conservation Agency on Monday said that leopard cats remain critically endangered despite a steady increase in population in recent years. Now, according to the agency, it's detected leopard cats in Taichung, Miaoli, Nanto and recorded isolated sightings in Shinzu, Zhanghua, Jai and in Tainan. Now, that Tainan sighting was also reported this week and it was the first in 17 years in the city. Now, the Forestry and Nature Conservation Agency says long-term monitoring shows that the density of leopard cats has been riding steadily but the species relative abundance has yet to stabilize meaning leopard cats officially remain critically endangered there are apparently according to the latest numbers around 500 of them in taiwan at the moment so donovan you have them in taijong apparently yes uh, i mean basically they're largely concentrated here in central taiwan and of course as you know i do the central taiwan news and icrt and i've talked about them quite regularly um, because they are largely located in Taichung, Nanto, and uh, Miaoli. 
And, you know, I, I'm, it's good to see that they're expanding their territory because the biggest thing that you see in the news, I don't know if this is actually the biggest cause of death, but the one that you see constantly here in central Taiwan is leopard cat run over by car. And you see it again and again and again. And it's really quite a depressing story. But to see that they've expanded their territory, to me, is a very welcome a bit of news. It's a really a good indication of the situation. It's a good indication of the success of the this policy and showing that the leopard cards are spreading, meaning the population is growing. Um, I think what is concerning is that the animal is maybe getting closer or too close from residential areas or small towns and villages, which could also indicate that the animals might also struggle to find necessary food or um, because they are maybe too close from these residential areas. So we now we have to um, maybe follow the situation and, and find the right balance, whether if they are too close from residential areas, that could be an issue. It doesn't appear that finding food is the problem. It appears to be they get caught in traps, they get run over by cars. They're not very good at interacting with humans within their environment. They're not very good at avoiding cars, which, interestingly, feral house cats are better at avoiding these kinds of problems than the leopard cats are. They just haven't really adapted. And now, of course, you know, that they haven't adapted is not necessarily their fault. That, of course, is our fault as humans, but we continue to encroach on their environment and we continue to run them over with our cars. Now, they have had some very successful uh, programs over the last uh, few years where they've started to involve, for example, in Nanto, um, farmers involve them in the success of their reproduction and expansion and keeping an eye on them. And so they've actually started enlisting more and more farmers in and yeah, giving them incentives to ensure their survival. And that seems to have helped. And on that jolly note, we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Dimitri Buyas. Yeah, it was great to be here. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Of course, always been great to be here as well. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app when you get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.